Hello, and welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm your host, Wolf Tyvee, one of the editors at Palladium. I'm joined here today by Ben and Oberon from Bismarck Analysis. They wrote our recent article, great article, on machine tools, Korea's industrialization, pretty much everyone's industrialization, how it all works. Um, so guys, why don't you start us off with, if you want to introduce yourselves a little bit more in depth than I just did, and with a summary of the article, and we can talk about what we learned. Yeah, uh, I'm Ben. I've been researching industry and sort of the fundamentals of how and why and where production is done for the past couple of years. I'm uh, Oberon. Um, I'm a systems engineer by training, um, but I've also spent the past several years uh, developing a more systematic theory of the sort of sociologic, uh, sociological framing for the development of technologies over time, and uh, that feeds into the research done with uh, Bismarck as well. Great. So these are all topics that we're very interested in. Uh, let's let's get excited here and start talking about um, how to build great industry, basically. So, yeah, can you guys give a summary of the article? Yeah, so the basic idea, we were looking at the machine tool industry in particular, and this ended up telling us a lot about industrialization in general, where we had gone through case studies of all of the countries that today are producing large numbers of machine tools and a bunch that aren't, and looking into the machine tool industries and how they got that way. And what we discovered is that in all of the successful cases, there was pretty substantial involvement from the state and a lot of support behind that, mm -hmm. uh, with the possible exception of the original British Industrial Revolution, although I've recently been told I should read a book about that. Ian Fletcher was telling me that the state was more involved in that, so I'm going to be looking Great. into the sources mm -hmm. he was talking about there. And so, so the one anomaly we found uh, turns out may, may or may not actually be an anomaly. It might actually just follow the pattern we weren't aware. Further research is required, as they right. say. <laughs> so, okay, so machine tools. How did you get on to the thread of machine tools in particular in the first place? And what are machine tools? Why are they interesting to this topic? Yeah, so machine tools themselves are uh, machines that, like a computer guides this tool head, which will cut away metal. So it cuts out a very precise metal shape. The sort of simplest one machine tool is the lathe. Mm -hmm. And then today, what's much more used in industry is uh, what's called CNC machine tools. Yeah, so CNC is uh, computer numerical control, and that's when you have... Uh, computer programs controlling the exact positioning and every aspect of the toolpath, and you can do a much more substantial level of automation. Um, and essentially, this uh, allows you to do um, computer design and then also fully automated manufacturing of, you know, at the, on the first level, or the most common thing would be uh, metal parts that you're using, you know, for automotive or for military applications or for, you know, yeah. mobile technology or anything like that. So, so in the case of a lathe, you mm -hmm. have. You know, you've mapped, you've mounted your part. Yeah. The part spins, and you move a uh, a fixed tool um, onto that part, and it cuts away metal, and and it creates sort of revolved shapes. And then a, a mill, I guess, is the other major example. That yeah. It's yeah. become sort of synonymous with CNC machine. Mm -hmm. Is you have a rotating tool head, 
and then the part moves kind of in XYZ three dimensions. Yeah. And and you or maybe the head moves up and down. Yeah, I think for those ones well. actually worth worth noting, it could be XYZ three dimensions, but you can have many, many more dimensions than that. So you'll yeah, you can see you can do spins, tilts and, yeah, and all kinds exactly. of stuff. Exactly. There's it's, that's yeah. one of like the, the so the thing one of the things about machine tools is that there's an almost infinite variety of them. The more specialized you get, the more range of different right. options there are. And one of the things is the number of different axes, the precision of the movement for those different axes, as well as the, the tool bit that's actually, yeah. you know, carving out the material is also a very important variable. Yeah. But, but the general idea here is basically tools that allow us to shape metal by cutting yeah. very precisely and repeatedly through uh, basically computer control. Like you can design a part, then have this machine just, just build a part and the part is sort of production ready in terms of like, well, you can just load the bearings into it and bolt it up to whatever it was, whatever it's supposed to be and then... Yeah, so it, it, so it allows is, you to actually build things like an engine or something. It is worth noting that there are actually still a substantial number of non-CNC machine tools that are used in the world, many of them in China, uh, yeah. because they are substantially cheaper and it can be easier to operate them in, in certain you know lim limited uh, contexts. So it's for the most advanced manufacturing that you'll be seeing in somewhere like Germany or Japan, um, it's almost exclusively CNC machine tools. There's not that much market for the, the simpler manual ones, but um, in a lot of developing countries, the, you still do see an enormous amount of that as well. Um, yeah. It's just a matter of the capital cost for them being much lower, um, and they're easier to uh, to support in terms of you know fixing any problems that happen with them and everything like that. Right, right. Yeah, and, and I think the workforce doesn't have to be quite as educated in, or at least like the, the, the sort of workforce um, infrastructure of like how instructions actually get to mm. the machine doesn't have to be as sophisticated in the manual case. Like in the CNC case, you have to have people who know how to generate the right kind of code for the machines. You have to have all this complex software involved. Um, and with the manual ones, it's like some guy goes over to the shop next door and says, Hey, I need a part that's kind of like this. And then someone can kind of whip it out on the machine. Yeah. It's easier to train unskilled workers, I think, to, to use more manual machine tools. Um, whereas, you know, if, yeah, if you're going to be operating a CNC, I think there's a stat out there of some substantial majority of the G code, which is the code driving, uh, the, yeah. the tool path that is, is run on most machine tools to this day is just written at the point of, of operation or, you know, by, by people directly involved in that. Although there are all sorts of uh, higher level softwares that uh, can, be, right. can be purchased, of course, to do this in a more automated way and translate, you know, a part design that you have in some CAD software into an automated tool path without too much manual input, but there's so yeah. many uh, degrees of freedom and there's so much going on um, that you, you do need to have a fairly skilled operator almost, almost unavoidably. Right. Um, and that's, that's one of the, one of the things that, um, drives the, the use in, in some context of the, of the simpler ones, even though they are much less, much less capable and the throughput that you get is right. much lower and all these sorts of things. Right. Okay. So, so that's what machine tools are basically. Um, what, how did you get onto machine tools as a, as a topic of interest for this particular research was it you guys were looking into machine tools and you found all this stuff about industrialization or was it you were looking at industrialization you reasoned your way to looking at machine tools what was the um what was the direction you came at this from yeah so this came from trying to understand like there's a term i use the industrial fundamentals where when i'm looking at economics i find it's often much more productive to look at things like uh factories and skilled workforces and raw materials rather than like 
interest interest rates and bank balances and things like that. And so as we were looking into the landscape of this in general, uh, a sort of raw manufacturing is obviously a really big piece of this. And like, we've all been hearing stuff about, oh, American manufacturing is in decline. And there's this question of like, you know, how real is that? Is that a thing people are saying? Is it like right. how real you, and serious? How do you go look at the ground reality of manufacturing? What, what do you look at? Right. And when you're doing something like this, you don't want to necessarily look at all of manufacturing. Like you can find graphs that have like manufacturing on the y-axis, but like, what does that mean? Right. <laughs> and so like when you're doing something like this, it's often very helpful to break off a smaller part of it that is a crucial part of it just on its own. Like, machine tools yeah. are... If you take machine tools out of the supply chain, the whole thing just falls apart. Yeah, you can't do anything if, yeah. right. if you can't build complex parts because you use them to build engines, you use them to build parts. Everything we build out of mm. metal, basically, uh, almost everything we build out of metal at some point is going through one of these machines. Right, uh, but more to the point, you also can't... You're just not going to come out with a good understanding of the machine tool industry worldwide and not understand things about, like, the manufacturing landscape. Like, you can't do it. Right. And so this sort of case study method, like, it's one of the crucial, crucial research tools we use at Bismarck and I use in my own, just trying right. to understand what the hell is going on in the world. And like, the, the case study method is where you're picking some particular thing to look at in a really deep way to really understand it, to, uh, to shed light on larger phenomena, rather than using statistics or sort of abstract argument, you're going and looking very deeply at some particular reality. Exactly. Yeah. And once you've done a couple of these case studies, some in a lot of depth and then a larger number in shallow depth, then you're in a much better position to look at the abstract arguments or look at the statistics and understand what they actually refer to. And so it's not just numbers, but you're like, oh, I see where this is going. And then why something like machine tools instead of like oil or car factories, like... Any of those also would have been good, but I. Do you remember why we chose machine tools out of all of the stuff like this? I, I think there's there's a there's a few reasons, and I don't think I'm going to capture all of them. But one of the things that you see if you look into the literature on on advanced manufacturing is that machine tools often are talked about as being sort of a bellwether of of production capacity. One of the reasons right. for that is that the purchasing of machine tools uh, is indicative of growing manufacturing capacity in a country. So, and, and actual manufacturing in some sense, as opposed to things yes. that could just be defined as manufacturing. Right. It's not correlated directly to the dollar value of manufacturing output, which is what you'll get from macro-level statistics about the U.S. economy. It's right. more about what are people building factories to build right now, and that tells you about what the future is going to look like for, yeah. for a country that's making these things. And also, the ability to access machine tools is really critical to supporting something like an advanced military or something like that. So you right. see a phenomenon. Yeah, you, can't, you can't build tanks without machine tools. Right, right. right. And yeah. so I don't want to say it's an unfakeable indicator, but it's an indicator that I don't think anyone is currently faking. Right. And, and there's a right. lot of things that are being faked. Right. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. and so bringing it back actually to um, your comment about like just looking at the ground reality in economics, I thought that was really interesting, Ben. Um, you said... Uh, Basically, like, let's not look at these abstract numerical kind of um, financial views of industry. It kind of like adds too much interpretation already and, and separates you from, from the reality of the thing. Rather, looking at kind of the fundamentals of industrial capacity. Like, what are the material processes happening? First of all, what are the material processes happening? Then, 
how are we sort of coordinating our relationship to that? But like, I, I thought that was interesting. I just wanted to like expand on that theme a little bit. Um, if you have more comments there. Yeah. So this is actually a piece that I got when I was, so when I did undergrad, I got my degree in economics and like, I was reading all this stuff about like, it was very financial. It was all about right. like flows of money and interest rates and exchange rates and like, you know, balances of trade. And I had a really hard time, like, it just didn't seem very predictive. Like, the models I learned there could not be like, here's why Vietnam is developing and Cambodia is not. Right. And then later, so somehow they gave me an economics degree without ever making me read Adam Smith. So it was a few years <laughs> later when I read Adam Smith and I'm like, wait a minute, this guy is just doing a different activity. Like... Yeah, he's, it's not just fooling around with, with abstract numbers. Right, like, there's very little math. I think there's, like, a bit of multiplication. But, right. like, he's mostly just looking at, like, cattle and grain and, like, ship tonnages. And I'm like, oh, I see why he did that. Like, like it's just a very different process. And it was much more predictive. And, like, there were right. some important pieces that, like weren't figured out in his day, but, like, mm -hmm. the process he was using seemed way more productive to him. Yeah, so, so in some sense, like, how did this happen? Like, people got too much faith in the accuracy and totality of the models to the point where we only talk about the models um, and, and, like, are kind of avoiding discussion of the underlying reality or, like, we, it's no longer relevant to talk about what is the underlying reality somehow. Like... I find that interesting. Like, how did that happen in the history of economics? I don't know if you have any comments on that, but but that's a very interesting thing that we we did, like, especially American society, kind of move away from uh, sort of hard discussion of industrial capacity towards this very financialized discussion. Yeah, and I'm not sure, and I haven't looked into the history of this as much as I would like, but what I think was at least a big piece of it was how economics has gone from a relatively technical and esoteric field into, like, a crucial source of political auctoritas and a sort of grounding out of the legitimacy of any claim right. about how society should be structured kind of has to reference economics. And, like, it's not that it, it was a apolitical field in the early days, like... Adam no, I mean, Smith it's... was absolutely trying to persuade Parliament. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in, in many ways, economics is always, like, extremely political. I think what you're getting at, though, is the way that these sort of yeah, it's abstract, like... nominally non-political disciplines have become sources of authority. Right, uh, and it's like... gone from sort of a technocratic field to the sort of cudgel in the hands of demagogues. Right. Yeah, I, think, I think there's also some some dynamic of... Um, a, a belief among the elites who are, you know, do, doing this kind of work of believing that it's 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 not the place of the government to to have real opinions about the material production, and that it is about some sort of more, um, you know, s setting up the 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 like macro level stuff, and then letting the lower level stuff uh, come yeah. out the way that it will, and sort of a, a washing one's hands of the actual material production and saying, well, if, if our policy means that most of the manufacturing happens overseas in Germany, do we care? Yeah. You know, the, the numbers look pretty good. The GDP is going up and, and sort of this, um, idea that 
that that's okay and that you know yeah. everybody's everybody's still doing doing very well so why why worry about it on some level yeah so that maybe that's actually a good question to try to answer here is well why do we care about these machine tools and production and so on it's like yeah americans are very rich we're all you know selling a lot of real estate getting a lot of money for that <laughs> uh all doing very well or at least our parents are um and and, and yeah, so the, I've certainly heard that narrative being thrown around that like, oh, it doesn't matter. Like, oh, well, if the manufacturing is done overseas, that's just because that's what's more efficient, right? So what is it that actually does drive why that matters Yeah, uh, in your guys' opinion? So like you can have all the money you want, but like the money is chasing a finite amount of physical goods, which is what people actually want and care about. And like, yeah, you can imagine a world where like, Germans and Japanese are producing a bunch of stuff and then it's all being shipped to America. And certainly that was true for a lot of China's rise over the past couple of decades. But, like, that still means you're producing less stuff than if you were also making the stuff in America, too. And okay. So there's the sort of, like, how much stuff is being made and how is it being distributed are sort of these two key... Well, I guess, I guess the counter from the sort of uh, financialized economist would be that the Americans are doing higher level kind of service jobs in managing this empire of overseas production somehow. So that like they, the Americans are doing important work in the system, just is not the manufacturing work. And if they redirected, if we redirected our efforts through some kind of government action towards um, a more hard industrial capacity, that would actually remove value from the system because we would not be doing whatever high value task it is we're doing right now. Yeah, you need all of these insurance lawyers arguing with each other about who's going to pay the right, jacked well, up. I mean, the, the market yeah. does produce that result and who are we questioning? So I think there's there's some aspects of that, though, that harken back to uh, a view that, that you can see sort of at the height of the British Empire as well, right? right? Where, let's say in the early 19th century, you know, Britain was doing an astronomical amount of manufacturing relative to all of their peers, right? And they were also after, you know, after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, like the center of the most powerful empire that the world had ever seen, right? right. And there's this idea that it's okay if the manufacturing starts moving elsewhere because we are the, we are the center of this thing. And even if even if we don't access the German markets anymore, you know, we have these captive markets in the colonies that we can sell mm -hmm. to. Um, but then what you see is that by the time of the First World War, they're having to import large amounts of material from the United States because Britain doesn't have the industrial capacity anymore to support the war effort, right? Yeah. And then you still see, you know, after the Second World War is, I believe, when the British Empire reaches its territorial height. But you can already see that in reality, it's it's not supportable, and, and people kind of know that. And then you see this this decline over the course of the 19th century. Right. Um, and, and I think a lot of that can actually be tied to a loss of the ability to, to you know, domestically support what's necessary to have that sort of empire. Yeah, right? well, it's, and it's, it's, it, it's sort of like your, your hold on your position in global trade is somewhat tenuous, right? Like, political conditions change. This is one of the things that... It, economics is sort of abstracted over a lot mm. is this thing of like well what if law breaks down what if you have war etc and like what does that do to your economic position um and that those kind of questions are kind of thrown out the window also the political power associated with economic power is somewhat ignored mm. uh, or certain types of economic power um and and so like if your position in global trade is somewhat tenuous then 
you you want to err more on the side of like, well, if that like maybe I have access to manufacturing in some faraway place right now, but that could very quickly change because that's very far from my kind of uh, imperial core, um, and and that's one reason that I guess it matters is like it, things that are far away can be easily kind of taken away from you. Someone just has to blockade you and then you're right. done, right? You have no more machine which, tools. Which is something that, for example, China understands very well. And I'm not going to say that, you know, the Chinese approach to industrial policy is the perfect approach and we've got it all wrong, they've got it all right. right. But there are things that they've clearly understood. They are not okay with the fact that they rely on Japan, on Germany, on Taiwan, on Korea for their machine tool input. So they have been ramping up yeah. for decades well, it's, now. It's very clear for them, right? Because yeah. those countries are all, in some sense, part of a hostile block right, for, right. from their perspective. Like Taiwan, especially, they're, they're really mad about Taiwan. They're really mad about Japan. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so like they don't want to be dependent on their enemies for things or, or right. people who might become their enemies. And, and this is coming back to more on the sort of Chinese view of this. We've covered this before in Palladium, how like they, they do, in fact, view things through sort of a Marxist lens uh, with respect to the relation between economics and power. They say, well, we are seeking economic power because economic power is political power in some sense. And this, yeah. this sort of through that Marxist lens, uh, they, they come to that conclusion that like, OK, actually having control of the real factors of production uh, is is a very significant thing. It can't just be abstracted away. Yeah, no, I think there's there's definitely a, a substantial element of that. And the United States has had, like, there is a different theory that exists, where I, especially sort of post-1990, the idea that, um, you know, every country over time is becoming going to be, get closer and closer to being a liberal democracy and the, you know, free markets, the free flow of goods and capital is going to be universal and therefore there's a role for the United States to do less manufacturing and more, you know, high value, you know, financial services and everything like that. I mean, there there is a theory there. It's just that you can see maybe in the past 10 years or so, more so than, than prior, you can see aspects of that um, becoming harder to maintain. Yeah, well, I think what's happened there is like that theory is in some sense the right theory if you are running like you know, global federated republic kind of thing, which they thought... Right, they thought, th they they thought, thought this was the end of history, right? It's like, we've produced the world empire now. Uh, it, the international politics is, is just, like, a, a much reducing... Like, it's reducing over time. It's no longer going to be the major concern. And now it's just, let's lift our lift everyone up by the bootstraps and so on. Um, and, and competition's not going to be as much of an issue in the future. And And so they thought they were in that world... And, and part of the result of thinking they were in that world was they actually neglected the question of how do you actually maintain that empire. And, and they, they stopped looking at those hard questions of power that would have maintained that position if it were maintainable, which it may not have been. Uh, mm -hmm. But even if you assume that type of sort of federated, cooperative, international stance, like, even, uh, even then, like, in that case, the political aspect of not having the sort of key industries right. is like that won't bite you, but the raw economic one, like to go back to uh, Oberon's example of Britain, like it wasn't just that they ended up relying on Americans for like imports of like a couple of things like, you know, shell steel and, you know, all of the whole lend lease, you know, all the ships and tanks and stuff. It's also that like the British people themselves were just 
less rich than Americans by, like, the 50s and 60s. Like, it took them, what, like, what? a decade to end rationing of bread after the war. Like, <laughs> ten years. Yeah, I, right. A disaster. Um, yeah, and I'm not sure if this is directly related to that or not, but part of that is your population will become sort of detrained in particular industries if you don't have them there anymore. Um, and, like, you can imagine this in a very kind of... Uh, visceral way like a very concrete way like some young guy in china at college you know working on robotics or whatever can just go down the street and talk to the talk to a bunch of manufacturers about like well what can we build you know say i have this thing like a quadcopter and i want to uh turn turn that into a product like there's a very tight feedback loop and going to talk to manufacturers in in there's you know the shops everywhere there's there's parts markets everywhere uh, you, you have much more direct social contact with the actual factors of production um, in a country where that's actually happening. Whereas in the United States, um, you know, the same kind of kid at going through college or whatever, doing some interesting robotics experiments with quadcopters, they don't have anything down the street. Down the street is like a McDonald's and, uh, you know, someone's law firm. Um, and, and so there isn't the same like direct contact with the material factors of production and thus you are not able to do things like there's things that you are just it's not just like oh we've specialized out of that or we don't do that because it's low value it's like we have lost the ability to to do those things and i think in this case it's like a very real example right because that's the story of quadcopter manufacturing is america kind of got in there first with all these hobbyist clubs who are building the things but once it came time for production it was the uh, it was a company, a startup in China, it was DJI, who actually made it work commercially. And, you know, it was this story of, like, can you go and talk to the guys building it or not? Um, and I think that's, like, a very significant dimension to the problem. Like, if you have sort of manufacturing just abstracted away from some whole region, even, like, within your, let's say it's all totally politically unified empire, if manufacturing is just completely abstracted away from some whole region... Um, the people there who are going to be good at manufacturing, who might go into it, um, or the ways that it might end up being a good idea to do there, they become kind of impossible because you've lost a bunch of the prerequisites in that region, that economic region. Right. And even within countries, machine tool production tends to be very, very concentrated within right. like cities. There's like, you know, the equivalent of how you'll have Hollywood for movies, or we used to have Detroit for cars... Yeah, like L.A. for aerospace and etc. Yeah. And like like most of these industries, because that type of in-person interaction is so crucial to passing on the traditions of knowledge, you yeah. see well, the, it's, same, it's the same pattern. Cities are real, right? Like cities yeah. are there for a reason, and it's because you get huge gains from being concentrated with other people who are doing things that you're interested in doing as well. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like in, in the German case, it's like this one, I'm not sure which city it is exactly, but it's like this one area uh, in, in, I think, western Germany where all the industry happens. Yeah, well, and Along the Rhine, the Rhine Valley is, is very concentrated industry. I right. think that might not be the only region, though. Germany is pretty, pretty central in a lot of ways. Right. Um, yeah, so, so you guys sort of, uh, through looking at this machine tools issue, you were looking and looking more generally at these issues of like industrial sovereignty, we might call it. Yeah. Um, you found basically a huge heavy hand of the state 
in this story whenever it happens. Mm-hmm. And so that's, again, contrary to sort of the usual, um, the usual narrative, the usual stories of how these things happen. It's like, oh, yeah, you just free the market, man. And like these, these crazy in, kind of industrialists will just build all this stuff because they want to sell more efficient product. Um, and so I guess empirically in all these case studies you found actually, well, it's the government has some particular kind of political or national need to industrialize the country. And so they go and actually coordinate these industrialists. Right. Yeah. Cause essentially there's just too many moving parts to hill climb just to, to hill climb from a non-industrial to an industrial economy. Like there's just too many things that have to be put in place at around the same time. Right. Or yeah, like, like investments, you know, if I'm going to build this sort of uh, first class factory to build one thing, well, that actually depends on having good supply chains and a bunch of other things. It's going to depend on having markets and a bunch of other things. So if, if the country is sort of not industrialized, it's not worth it to build that one factory. Right, right. especially if, if you can just buy the if you can just buy the factory outputs from the Koreans or whoever. Right, yeah. and this is a dynamic that you see a lot, even going back to the 19th century. Right, when again Britain was dominating manufacturing, and then you saw countries like Germany and the United States realizing that they needed to have that, but unless the state took a, an active role, essentially it was just cheaper for any local, any specific local business person to just buy the product from, from right. Britain because they could make it more efficiently, vastly more so than anywhere else in the world. But you put in tariffs and then all of a sudden that, that changes that differential and it's, mm-hmm. it's worthwhile for certain products to be made domestically. And that was sort of one of the earliest forms of industrial policy in order to create an, you know, an industrial capacity within your own nation. Yeah. You, you put up these specific barriers to say, yes, you would like to buy that, but it just got 30% more, more expensive. And now, you know, you're, you're going to have to make it yourself sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Or, or there's a new opportunity to make it yourself for all the other guys who are going to need it. Who are next also door. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And, exactly. and, and, and so to sort of, um, boil this down to like a very simple way of saying it, it's that the market isn't very good at solving large scale coordination problems. And there are large scale coordination problems in industrialization. Uh, there are, s- the market isn't good at solving all large scale coordination okay. problems. I right. would say. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there are many that, that it there exist. <laughs> right. The market is very good at coordination problems involving like who gets the goods, yeah. uh, for, for what purpose and, and so on. involving things where a single company can marshal enough resources to like go through any of the adaptive valleys. Like right. when it comes to, Oh, wait a minute. Sam Walton has figured out a better way to do distribution of goods. Like, the market is actually very good at that type of thing. But, yeah, like, yeah. some things just require more punch than even Sam Walton ever had. Yeah. Right. So, and, so there, and, there's a reason that, you know, smartphones were invented in the United States, um, and there's a reason that, you know, China only became wealthy once they adapted a more market-oriented system. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the market certainly works, but, but I guess what I'm getting at is there are certain things that it won't do on its own, um, certain forms of coordination problem that it will not solve, and industrialization seems to be one of these. Is that fair to a fair summary? Yes, absolutely. Okay, mm-hmm. so yeah, and and so you mentioned uh, Oberon some of the simple ways that early industrial policy kind of worked with tariffs and so on. There's a few other tricks I think you guys mentioned in the piece, things mm-hmm. like export discipline um, in Korea, where 
it's sort of like a reverse tariff, if I understand it correctly. It's like you can you should export to the global market, and we'll help you. We'll help subsidize that to get the initial efficient to get yeah. through the initial efficiencies valley. Yeah, but. Um, yeah, you only get the rebates if you're actually selling it on the global market. So if right. your product is shit and you can't sell it to any foreigners, then yeah. like you don't end up getting the yeah. subsidy so, or the rebate or whatever and, they and call so, it. Yeah. So that that allows you to build up kind of first class industry that's competitive with the global market, mm-hmm. but just not quite efficient enough yet. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, and, and so I guess since the initial kind of tariff regimes, um, industrial policy... Mm-hmm. I guess there's been a, a, a proliferation of many different tools and moves that have been made in this kind of field, such as it's no longer just about tariffs, if I understand. It's like actually a, a quite large toolbox in how you would industrialize a country. Yeah. Is, is that fair to say? Like, what, what are some of the other interesting things that have been done um, to, to industrialize? Yeah. So if you look at the case of uh, South Korea, for example, which, which we looked at a decent amount, um, they they did have some some simple tariffs in place, I believe, um, but they they had early on a, a policy of, of of export discipline wherein you know so when we say export to the global market, basically we mean export to the U.S. the U.S. market. Yeah. Um, right. So they were they were selling um, early on. They were trying to sell things like. Uh, you know, relatively cheap manufactured goods to the U.S., not so much the, you know, the, the machine tools you would use to actually right. build those factories. They would import the advanced uh, tools and systems that they needed in order to create this production. And they would do that in, yeah, in conjunction with U.S. manufacturers, with German, etc. Um, and, you know, the, the, the state would basically say, if you can sell um, a substantial amount of your output to international markets, that means it's good. You're making quality things, and therefore we're going to give you tax rebates and whatever. And then a little bit later, what they actually did is they did something called uh, import substitution, where you look at, okay, what are you specifically importing in order to build your factories? For example, some specific type of machine tool, and you say, all right, we are going to incentivize people to make those domestically. And it's sort of like bringing the supply chain into your own country piece by piece by piece. Um, and th- so those two things, sort of one and then the other, were a huge part of the story for Korea. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, so- somewhere like Germany, I think, took a very substantially different approach after the Second World War, right? Everything was right. completely destroyed and Western Germany was, was occupied. Um, but over the course of about 10 years, they, they re- rebuilt their industry. Um, and they had a whole range of other policies. It's, it's very dependent on what the situation is. Well, I, I, from what I understand in the West German case... Um, they, in some cases, obscured what they were doing to some extent. Like they, they snuck it through various like financial institutions mm-hmm. that didn't look to sort of naive American observers like government policy, um, and and sort of like they they sort of tooted the free market horn uh, in the discourse, but but didn't necessarily do that in in how they were actually handling the situation is that true yes so actually uh quick aside park chung hee in korea did basically the same thing he had this whole series of books that he wrote over the course of his his time in power um and especially the early ones were very much selling the idea of his industrial policy and his frankly mixed market uh, approach as the way to be a bastion against communism, right? And, right. and uh, you know, here's how you be, build a free society sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, because what matters at this um, point is very much like, let's be friends with the United yeah, States. Yeah, and in, in the case of Germany, a lot of their 
reindustrialization or the the reconstruction of their national economy was dependent on enormous aid from the U.S. as well as access to American markets for for export, right? right? Yeah. As well as other markets in in Europe, and this was before there was uh, you know a common trade union and everything like that, of course. Um, and so they did very much try to make it seem like what they were doing was what the Americans would want. Right? Yeah. But then in reality, they had like immense control over their financial systems. And they had right. these, 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 these mechanisms, for example, where basically the, 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 the money of like the private business elite of the country yeah. was partially under the control of the government to just invest in what they wanted to invest in. Right. They would say, this year, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna advance their coal pro- output. Or this right. year, we're going to build this specific type of machine tools. And that's how you see, you know, over the course of the late 40s and the, and the early 50s, you see like 20, 30% year-over-year increase in production for very specific, uh, you know, parts of the economy. Because the right. people running West, Western Germany, they knew... They had, they'd had an industrial economy before the war. Yeah. Their country was destroyed. They knew they what said, was missing. <laughs> this is what we need. We are going to build it. But we're going to tell the Americans that, oh, no, yeah, of course, you know, yeah. free markets, <laughs> our, obviously. Our, our free capitalists are yeah. just, just yeah. investing in what makes the most sense. <laughs> right. and what's really important here is that a lot of this coordination is not done through, like, the formal and legible parts of the state. It's through, like, these guys who know each other yeah. and are sort of, like, all on board and yeah. so if you look at the functions that are being done instead of the, like, what on paper is part of the state or not, then you can see these functions of governance being done by, like, you know, these, just yeah. this clique of industrialists, essentially. Yeah, this, yeah. this, this is a really important point. Like, the, the formal structure of government is often not the whole story, or even, like, half of that is not even part of the story. Mm. And there there's... There's yeah these these cliques or these other structures that are nominally private that are actually doing a bunch of governing or there's a bunch of government things that are not doing a bunch of governing, and so this distinction between kind of private and public uh, government and society uh, when you look closely often breaks down, and I mean in some ways the the distinction is a little bit kind of fake to begin with all of society is sort of a bunch of coordination patterns and some of these coordination patterns are more based on like networks of people working together for kind of political ends and some of these things are based more on like fungible economic actors who can be swapped out but um but it's kind of all part of a, a part of a system that doesn't work the way kind of we pretend that it works in terms of there being a formal government, the formal government makes moves, and there's a bunch of totally uncoordinated private actors who work within that landscape. Yeah, and how close the sort of paper story is to the real story will vary depending on when and where you're looking. Right, yeah. And another thing probably to, to note is that uh, it, it's very clear that someone like Park Chung-hee running Korea in yeah. the 60s was aware of this fact. Right. Yes. And, and there was a period of time, especially aware early, of which fact, sorry. aware of the fact that uh, the, the coordination does not end with the state, basically, yeah. yes. and that in order for this to work, you need a lot, you need a lot more than what the Americans say you need on paper. Yeah. And, and when in, in Japan as well, they've got um, the, the Kiretsu, mm, uh, yeah. the, the big industrial conglomerates where they all own each other and they're all friends with each other and they all like... It's owned by a few sort of sets of families, and those people are very tightly coordinated with the state, I think, through the financial system and through just, like, the social yeah. graph at, and the, at the upper levels. Not, I don't really know all the details of that, but it's kind of like, 
in some sense, you're not going to know it because a lot of this is just kind of dark matter and who knows who and who's kind of coordinated in the national project. Yeah, the, the details of that, I think, are deliberately obscured to some extent. Or I don't know, I, I was reading up a bit about it and there's people making the argue, argument that the, the Kiritsu structure in the modern age is gone and it's not a thing anymore. And then there's other people saying it almost certainly is. Um, and you look at the nature of the Japanese economy, it definitely is not what you'd expect if things were uncoordinated, as it right. were. Um, and that, but that is also, uh, in the case of Japan, something that goes back to the in initial uh, industrialization policies that were brought in in the Meiji period. Um, right. they, they deliberately gave power to people within certain, you know, to, uh, to you know, entrepreneurs within certain subdomains and said, well, you were making, um, you know, you were, you were, you were doing some some low-level industry and now you're going to be doing manufacturing of ships or something like that right right and that was the that Kiretsu structure goes back to the you know the time in the the late 19th century yeah and then there's sort of multiple transformations over time after after the second world war Japan also had a, a reconstruction effort and you know yeah. a new constitution uh you know under the auspices of the U.S. Uh, occupation um but it's it's that same that same basic structure which actually does map onto what you see in Korea or in Taiwan and also in China to a substantial extent because it's sort of the 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 whole East Asian model is inspired by the approach that the Japanese took because it worked yeah. very well. Well, and, and it sounds like the German model kind of works this way a little bit as well. Like you have basically a bunch of industrial elites. The industrial elites are not actually these independent actors but are in fact coordinated with each other and with the state. Yeah, and I think this is probably not a coincidence because when the Japanese were studying the West and like figuring out what to copy, Germany was the country they were copying the most. Yeah, Japan sent a lot of people to Germany in the late 19th century, early 20th century to basically learn from the Germans, learn statecraft, learn industry and so on. Right, and one of the open questions that I have uh, one of the things I'd really like to look into, and if anyone listening to this knows things about it, please do email me, uh, is in like the same period in the United States, in sort of the J.P. Morgan days, were were the American financiers performing a similar function, and like what was going on with the way that they were like buying up and reorganizing all of these things? I haven't. Right. That's gonna. It'd be a really hairy one to look into, but I would love to yeah. know the answer. Yeah, so speaking of this, this like the American case on one hand and um, this idea of like the actual coordination structure not necessarily being the formal coordination structure, um, in the American case, we sort of have, in, in after the Second World War and especially after the 1970s, um, we sort of have at least a lot of people say that we've had a breakdown of, of industry in America. And one story you might tell on this is that we kind of stopped maintaining the sort of secret knowledge of how the economy actually worked and started kind of doing the thing that we were pretending to do, which is this kind of independent free market um, uh, approach without without coordination between business elites and state um and and so like that's one kind of hypothesis you might throw it for like what happened in the latter half of the 20th century with america kind of losing a lot of industry um so i'd like to hear from you guys what do you think about did america actually lose industry and if so sort of why and does it have much to do with this like um maintaining these kind of private uh, knowledge of how the economy actually works. Yeah, I think that, that that story is basically right. I would say that we're like 
the industry is sort of sliding down, it's definitely not lost yet. Like, if right. you... Like, we're nowhere near as far into this process as Britain is. Right. But, like, it definitely does suit... If you look at the statistics for manufacturing jobs or percentage of the economy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, it's definitely sliding down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, I think a lot of it was during the sort of post-World War II period, having a lot of these guys who are doing de facto industrial policy and know that's what they're doing and having all of this free market rhetoric similar to uh, the Germans, although in the American case, a lot of, because of the different, you know, we're the hegemons, so a lot of the industrial policy gets routed through the military instead of through these sort Mm -hmm. of dark matter social networks. Uh Uh, And then... As you get the sort of generational turnover, sometime in the 70s especially, but it's sort of a gradual process. Yeah. Like, these people leave and their successors take over and they don't really get the joke. There's this sort of public story of uh, what's been going on that they just end up actually believing that, like, oh, we're just doing free trade, right? And right. Matt Ellison, in his article on Hilger, I think it was, yeah. uh, describes this dynamic quite well. Uh and was happening around the same time, of course, uh, of how you get these people coming in and just not really getting the double talk and just doing the thing that's the sort of, like, sign on the outside of the door, doing the public story that you use for cover. Mm -hmm. And so America still does a fair amount of industrial policy, and what we do, we do not admit is industrial policy, but like, and and that's, yeah, that's really part of the problem. I mean, I remember reading, you know, you occasionally read something from basically before the 1970s about like how industry worked and like how research worked and so on. Mm. Like anything you read about like early bell labs or just like how things worked with, um, you know, I, I attended this, uh, the opening of a film about Claude Shannon the, the inventor of information theory, basically. Um, well, his story is kind of interesting in this light. It's like, oh, he just got handpicked by Vannevar Bush somehow and, like, got put into some particular piece of industry and, like, you know, told to work on particular problems and then he came up with some great stuff there. And it's just like, oh, random college students were just, like, handpicked by guys like Vannevar Bush and, like, put into particular problems. Like, it's completely alien to, yeah, to and, my, my modern experience. And if you go back to when Britain was still making breakthrough technology, they haven't really since the end of World War II, but, like, when Marconi was moving from Italy to England and the customs officer opens up his luggage and sees all of this weird science shit, in, like, inside the suitcase... <laughs> And so he ends up calling up on the phone the British intelligence services right. who end up funding Marconi. <laughs> <laughs> wow. yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's really interesting. Like, just you just reading these things, again, coming back to this case study method, is just like, go actually look at the reality, right? Read the, read the accounts from the people who are there. Mm-hmm. And you notice a bunch of these details. They're just like, wait, what? Yeah, like, and just like <laughs> trying to like imagine living in the world where that just happens. You're just like... Some customs totally... officers seeing some weird apparatus. It's like, of course the government would want to know about this, right? Right. But, like, I don't even know who I would call. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm... Oh, man. I mean, yeah. Like, y- you run into things all the time where it's like, wait, that person's a spy. <laughs> <laughs> who do we call? <laughs> like, this has happened. But, uh, yeah, no, it's... Yeah, it's really... I've, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's, yeah, things, things have changed quite a bit over time. Um, and a lot of it, yeah, is this, this loss of kind of the actual essence of the thing while holding up the public narrative. And I guess this is, this is one of the big dangers of having a public narrative that substantially diverges from the actual reality is succession is really hard because you've trained everyone into thinking about, uh, into, into a legitimacy structure that is incompatible with what you're actually doing. And so they, they come in and either just don't know how to run the real thing or they think it's a corruption. Right. This is why I have very little patience with the sort of noble lie idea yeah, it, of like, you'll have the inner people who know the true secrets and then they, they tell some sort of comforting lie to society. No, is it, that it, it this blows breaks, up in one generation. <laughs> like sometimes you can get it to pass down for even three generations, very, very rarely, but I don't think it's ever been done for four that I've ever heard about. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, yeah, you have to have like society at some point has to be honest about what it's doing and how it works. And, um, yeah, and that's, that's unfortunately something we've like stopped being honest about economics and subsequently stopped knowing how it works. Uh, and, and so it's like really useful to have guys like you kind of digging into this stuff, reestablishing that knowledge and being very clear, no, this is how it works. Mm -hmm. You know, in industry, there is this substantial, these coordination problems that the state has to step in and solve. And then there's all these, you know, non, not directly economic interests even that, that get the state to do that. Um, yeah, so I found this work extremely useful sort of from that perspective of like, let's recover our knowledge of how this stuff works and, and like be a little bit loud about it. Well, fortunately, a lot of the people who were in those periods of more straightforward discourse on this stuff, like their work is still out there. So. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the, the nice thing about, about when, when things working, uh, when the people are honest is while well, they, they wrote it down mostly and talked about it I yeah. mean, out, outside of military matters directly, I guess mm -hmm. you often don't get the military stuff because military is not honest about how it works. Yeah. Um, to where enemies can hear. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I do think um, just in in some of the research for this, I came across quite a lot of stuff written in German, which there wasn't a translation for. And the Germans, I think, have a very substantial, quite honest literature that exists regarding right. this 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 sort of sort of stuff. Japanese probably as well, but that's even less accessible. You don't even find those referenced in English language works, but you do find the German ones referenced in English language works, and you just can't find a translation of it. And I think there is an enormous body of knowledge that exists in the multiple different traditions of yeah. how to actually do industrial policy well. Um, and so, so what you're saying is we should be learning German and Japanese. Uh, or at least paying some translators. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm an uncultured American. I don't speak a second language, but German, there's just, Germans would probably be first on my list. There's so much good scholarship on so many of the subjects I care about. I mean, about. the translations, yeah, yeah. yeah, the translations that I did find of German works were spectacularly good for for referencing for for this piece sir okay great yeah yeah and I, i've gotten that impression um with respect to japan as well just like a huge amount of untranslated stuff that's really important yeah. uh, just in terms of like how they were doing political economy uh mm -hmm. in sort of pre-war and post-war period um yeah i mean it, so we've gone over a lot of the the sort of bulk of the material here um, I think we can spend some time exploring some of these interesting tangents. Um, one of the ones that we talked about was, uh, well, well, a couple of topics I'd like to explore. So first of all, the case study method, I think we could still say a lot more there, just like, how do you do this kind of work? And like, 
uh, I don't think we've exhausted that topic of like, how do we actually go and learn more about these important topics? Like what was the methodology you guys kind of used uh, sort of building this knowledge? And then the other thing is, um, I've forgotten the other one. So <laughs> yeah, so the case study method is basically just, like, most most of it just comes down to empiricism. Like, if you want to know how something right. works, you but want not, to look at like it working. But not like the fake empiricism with graphs and yeah. stats. Right, but, like, dropping You're... bowling balls off of a leaning tower or whatever. And actually watching them, not just... Or when, it comes, to, when it comes to <laughs> economics, like... Dropping the bowling ball takes seven years, so studying the history of it is often way better. Right, right. But, like, you want to, yeah, you don't want to be primarily looking at, like, graphs of GDP output. You want to be, like, seeing where the factories are, getting accounts of what, like, what's coming out of the factories, what's going into the factories, what life is like in the factories, how the material circumstances of people around the factories are changing, mm -hmm. and... Like, you want to be looking in a way that, like, you want to know what what was happening in the sort of, like, very human scale in the mm -hmm. places you're looking. Uh, and, like, so you, you'll be coming in with some rough theory of how things work. Maybe it's yeah. very sketchy, maybe it's mostly so, filled in. So, so, but the idea that you're going to look at the human scale, that's itself bundling a bunch of assumptions about how these things actually work because a lot of people will disagree with that they think oh well the human scale is not going to tell you anything because this thing is larger than any particular human's experience we're talking about huge sort of social forces that kind of transcend the individual you know the the kind of highest expression of this theory is is you guys know the foundation series yes. uh, by asimov <laughs> yeah where Harry Seldon comes up with psychohistory, which is an entirely statistical kind of approach to history that it completely abstracts over individual variation. In that kind of world, looking at the individual human's perspective is not necessarily informative. But I think the key fact that kind of falsifies that whole worldview and makes this case study method worthwhile is that actually these human systems that we build are... Um, sort of controlled and managed by particular humans, that particular humans do get into these positions of incredible influence and understanding over the whole system. Mm -hmm. And and we build them specifically to be understandable to humans because they are built by humans for human purposes, deliberately. They don't just like grow out of nothing, but they, they're things that we build. And for that reason, uh, you can get useful perspective on them because there are people who understand how they work at the center of them. Yeah, so I think that's definitely true, and like another reason why this human scale check in the case study thing is really important is, like, even if you imagined that weren't true, and like yeah. there were this statistical, you could, and there were some purely statistical abstracting over everything right. way of looking at it, like, if you were just handed that on a tablet, you'd be great, but if you're trying to figure it out, then like you have to be checking it against the thing to make sure you don't go off the rails as you're trying to build it. Right. Yeah, your statistical graphs and so on, they they you need good concepts, right. right? Like underlying those numbers is categorizations and quantifications. Right. And if you're reporting that GDP is growing going up and the reason for that is you're spending more on more on lawyers to argue with each other 
and this is increasing GDP, or like the old housekeeper paradox of like... Right, yeah, you marry your housekeeper and GDP goes down. <laughs> right, and so like, you have to be looking at the human scale to catch where things like this are happening. Right. Because, you know, if you're doing, staying at the more abstract level, sometimes you'll get these, but sometimes you won't. Yeah, and so, when you find the discrepancies between these, that's where you're like, oh, something's off here. Right, so that's not so much looking at the, the human scale, but just like looking at more detail in... Looking at the thing in more detail than you would through the statistical lens. Mm -hmm. Like actually just going and looking at the reality in some form or other. Like, it, it, you know, to give a totally non-human example, I used to work as an engineer. I developed fuel cells. Um, turns out reality is a complex system and to actually develop anything involves huge amounts of empirical trial and error and just like mm -hmm. getting all the little things to like not clog up and, you know, getting the flows just right and learning all the little tricks that you have to know to make this particular thing work. And uh, I remember I came into that with a very sort of statistical, rationalistic kind of perspective of like how you should do engineering. Like, oh, well, you just, you know, understand the fundamental forces involved and then you like derive what is the correct way to you do solve. it. And you solve for X. Yeah, you <laughs> solve, right? And, and then like, and then whenever you're kind of doing an experiment, you have sort of this experimental plan where it's like, you know exactly what's going to happen. Or, like, you sort of have some parameter space of what's going to happen, and then it's like, well, if it does this, then I know that. If it does this, then I know that. And then, like, you know, you actually hit the lab, and you realize that all that stuff is useless. <laughs> what really matters is really good photos of what was happening. <laughs> and it's like, oh, okay, the, the, you know, the little fragments of metal got clogged right here, and, like, I think very hard about why that happened. It's like, okay, because there's an eddy there, because, you know, the flow got messed up there, and it's like... Okay, that, that's something, like, you get that from the photos that you don't get from, like, any amount of sort of theorizing beforehand or, or uh, just statistical wizardry. Or it's like sometimes it's just, the statistical stuff is useful, but, like, it's not, um, it's not the thing that's really driving your understanding. And your understanding is much more, like, what concepts do I apply here and, mm -hmm. like, sort of it's like building the model rather than parameterizing it. Like it's not just a bunch of little quantified parameters. The statistics right, are great very... for the quantified parameters, but they're not good for building the model itself. Right, yeah. Getting all of those parameters and filling them in, that's like very, very late stage in the theoretical development. Yeah. yeah. That's so what... another thing that you, that you get out of the looking at the very specific cases is it gives you powerful intuitions for which high-level models are false. Right, because right. you you can look at a high level model and you you can say I I, I see how the yeah those numbers work out yeah okay that, that okay right. I see what you're saying and right? then you look that at the reality work. and it's like oh that concept just totally yeah. doesn't apply exactly <laughs> and, and if you just look at the high level reality you might say well there seems to be a little bit of complexities here that don't quite jive with the theory but you know it's a simplification maybe it still basically works but if you look at the the specific cases then you can have a, a grounded intuition of like okay. Like, this theoretical model of, like, what tariffs do seems basically right. Okay, uh -huh. this, this theoretical model of uh, what happens when you do free trade seems not quite right. Yeah. You know, and, and those, those, those intuitions can't really be built just from the, the macro scale. Because from the macro yeah. scale, all of them are simplifications, right? Um, and none of them are fully accurate, but some of them are a lot more predictive than others. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, that's much easier to get at through the, the case studies approach, I think. Right. So this motivates the case studies approach, I think. I think we've sort of like adequately argued for why you might approach it this way. Now, what about the actual kind of 
details of how you did it. Like, you know, you have to actually go and find the right things to read. You have to, what kind of sources are you looking at? You talked about sort of German translations. Um, what, how did you guys go through this process? Uh, what, what are some of, the, some of the big takeaways in terms of like how to do good case study research? Yeah, so it starts with a sort of like the intellectual equivalent of being dropped out of an airplane into the wilderness where you don't really nice. know where you are or what anything is and you need to like find a high tree that you can look around from and just like do some sort of really broad survey. And so like you know, secondary sources can be really good here and just finding finding something to situate yourself. So like we started with just a bunch of like trying to find the sort of raw numbers on like import volume and export volume and production volume just in purely monetary terms, which is a terrible place to start. But in terms of just getting a rough sense of what's happening where mm -hmm. can situate you and you don't have like strong conclusions, but you've like, okay, I've got a general sense of these things. Yeah, you, you get the lay of the land to some degree and it's like, oh wait, what's going on there? Why do they have so much import export or like... Right. Yes. And as you find anomalies here, those are going to be really good places to poke further. And some right. of those are going to be pretty simple. Like when we were looking and we found that like a bunch of the low countries had like really big import and export volumes. And then upon further investigation, it's because of things just being transshipped through them. It's like, oh, okay. So. Netherlands has a, lots of big ports. <laughs> right. But but then you can see, you know, in, in other things, you know, the, the, again, macro scale with consumption and production. And these numbers can only be trusted so much. But you can you can see, okay, you know, China is consuming an astronomical quantity, producing quite a lot as well. The U.S. is consuming the second most in the world, but producing yeah. not very much. You know, Germany and Japan both consume a ton, but produce more. And then you kind of go down the yeah. list and then past number 10, it's like, okay, rest of the world. Okay, the rest of the world consumes about like 10% of the total, or maybe a little less, and produces less than 1% of the total. So you can say, okay, basically all of those countries outside of the top 10 are doing virtually nothing, right? right? And then that already tells you tells you a lot, even though the specific numbers are, you know, quite dubious in terms of where it's coming from. Usually it's from official sources and the definitions are all complicated. But you look at that right. and you say, all right, what's happening in China? Yeah. What's happening in the U.S.? What's happening in Germany? What's happening in Japan? What's happening in other countries in sort of Central Europe, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, what's happening somewhere like uh, like Brazil, which does have machine tools industry, but it's not doing so great. Right. Um, and that's that's sort of a part of that initial situating yourself, and then from there, then you then you have to dive a lot deeper because yeah. any of the abstract models that people will just hand you on a plate, you just you just basically can't, can't yeah. take them at face value. Right, and and so I imagine like once you've once you've found a sort of a country of interest like Japan, Germany, whatever. I mean, those those two I think in one of your graphs have the interesting property of producing more than they consume, and that being somewhat of a unique property. Is that right? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, they're not the only ones. I think somewhere like, for example, um, uh, Switzerland uh, also right. does that. Uh, I believe uh, Czech Republic as well. Um, very uh, A lot of countries that are close by to, to, to Germany, which is which is interesting, and there's, right. there's, there's reasons for that. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's essentially, though, that, that not only do they 
produce more than they consume, but they both produce and consume more per capita than almost any country in the world. Right. right. You know, they, they, this is just, you know, the U.S. and China both produce and consume quite a lot, but they're very large countries. So per capita, right. it's actually like not not all that much. Right. But then, you know, somewhere like Germany, Japan, you look at that you're like, OK, this stands way out from almost everywhere else. And right. then that that's when you that's when you dive. Yeah. Into so that. so then you, you dive into that particular case and that's yeah. like you're building a timeline, you're building kind of understanding of the particular companies, particular processes mm-hmm. that are happening in that country. Yeah, the whole um, case study approach, it's very fractal. You just like pick yeah. out this other thing and then just apply the whole case study method to yeah. the smaller object. Right, okay. Right. And there's a lot of sort of deciding because the, the thing about fractals is they go, you know, there yeah, is yeah, no end, keeps right? Going, the, there there keeps is going. no bottom. Um, but you have to sort of prioritize. You say, okay, we've looked at this level for Germany. Should we go further? Probably yes in this specific aspect. Like, what was Otto von Bismarck doing? Because something right. happened. B- B- Bismarck is a big important character. Yeah. You know, unifies yeah. Germany, industrializes right. Right. Germany, etc. Exactly. After the unification of yeah. Germany, under him, he was in power for, for decades. And all of a sudden, Germany was making more machine tools than Britain. Okay. Something happened there. We're going to look look deeper at that particular part of history. Right. right? Zoom in to kind of like account for that anomaly. Yeah. Right. Right. And like usually you want a sort of pyramid structure where there's like at the top there's a small number of case studies where you're going in a lot of depth. Yeah. And then there's a moderate number of case studies that you're doing in a moderate amount of the depth. And then a large number that you're doing like very shallowly. And right. sort of with the intuitions that you train on the deeper ones to be like, right. are the general patterns holding up here or... Or is there anomalies? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. And then and then so finding the particular kind of documents and things to read that, that really give you kind of more information. It's Obviously, it's not just like you're going to... I guess you start with maybe going to the library, going to the internet and just mm-hmm. like what are the books on this topic and then finding out what they cite and chasing those things down. Is yeah. there any other tricks you use to find documents that you might not find that many? Uh, so bibliography crawling, like you described is huge. Right. Uh, I mean, finding experts who like know what they're talking about and like just getting their thoughts. Uh, sometimes they'll recommend sources. Sometimes they'll just know things that aren't written down. Right. Yeah, and sometimes the thing that things that they know that aren't written down give you keywords for further searching as well, right? right? right so yeah. there's there is a sort of very iterative process there, and with those keywords and those searches, you find more people who have specific knowledge, and then you can go to them, right? And yeah. it's it's again this fractal process where you could keep doing this forever, um, and it's just a matter of how much information do you do you really need to get? I mean, the the wealth of uh, publicly available information if you're willing to go through the effort to find it, is vastly more than anybody can ever go through. Um, yeah. You just have to keep keep iterating through the process and reading the things and finding the references and talking to the people and asking you know, what they suggest that you read or what their opinions are on the conclusions that you already have. Yeah. Um, and you, you can just keep iterating that until you feel that you, you've you know, fulfilled the scope of what you're trying to do, essentially. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so go for it, Ben. Yeah, and for economic stuff like this... When you're looking at the companies, then looking at the financials of the companies, looking at their advertising material, looking at their product demos right. is just going to tell you a ton. Okay, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, like anything you can get that's like a concrete sample of the thing itself, you find a whole bunch from that. Just like like I mentioned earlier, you know, you read something from the 60s and it's like, oh, Vannevar Bush just like kind of picks this guy. It's like, whoa, that's, that's an interesting fact, right? And like even just these things are sort of background to the thing itself that you're looking at end up being extremely informative. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the, the reason I was just like diving into this case study method, the reason I think it's important to talk about here is it's like, well, it's not just applicable to this industrial policy thing, right? It's, it's in some sense, our task is to dive into a whole bunch of areas of policy and government and industry and so on and understand all these things that kind of America has um, lost understanding of, or at least we have do not have understanding of them. Um, and, and to dive into those areas and really build real knowledge about society, this case study method is, is a great method. And so like getting this kind of in some detail is very useful. It's like, okay, well, how do we actually, when, when people are going in to look at these things to try to understand them and build knowledge, how do we do that? And so thanks so much guys for giving that summary. I remembered the other topic that I wanted to talk about. Mm. Um, so one final thing. So America, despite having lost a lot of our like industrial lead is still one of the only places or perhaps the only place where fundamental technological breakthroughs happen. Um, and or at least has been through the 20th century. Yeah, since the end of the Second World War, yeah. Okay, great. And yeah, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Like, what is it about America that does that? Is that kind of still strong or is that going to go away? Um, and yeah, I have a few other comments on that. But, but let's start with like, uh, Ben, you have published a video on that topic where you outline basically the crazy jerk theory creative destruction that. is the normal term in the literature right. <laughs> uh, but yeah so uh, Schumpeter's theory of how economic progress happens is that it's not the sort of incremental someone makes a 5% better mousetrap and then like the revenue goes up and it's slowly copied it's that someone comes in with a completely new way of doing things, and the other thing just gets like supplanted and is gone. Yeah. Uh, of the, course, the five percent improvements happen and are important. Right, mm. That's they're a, not where the innovation comes from, is I guess. What or they're not where. So you were talking about breakthrough technological yeah. progress. Right, the breakthrough. Yeah, and like we can, there is incremental progress, and it's real, and it's very important, and it's different from the breakthroughs from the like, you know. We now have heavier than air flight. And, like, that right. just didn't exist before is quite different from, you know, our batteries are 2% better. And, like, you keep stacking the 2%, that makes a big difference. But it's a different phenomenon, and it comes from different places, and you see yeah. it come from different societies. Yeah. Like, there's lots of places today that can do the incremental progress. But since the end of the Second World War, been, I was, I've been looking. I haven't found any examples of the breakthrough stuff outside of the United States. And before the Second World War, we also had... Britain and Germany. Yes, and it was mm -hmm. only yeah. those three for, like, out of the several decades before the war. Mm -hmm. And so the thing that... So there's a bunch of things that you need in place in order to have breakthrough technology. And I think if you're missing one of them, then you're just not going to get it. And I don't think I know all of them, but I know some of them. And the one that's currently unique about the United States and the world today is having a culture that is quite permissive of this type of creative destruction, where if, like, someone invents Uber and starts going around, that, like, they're just going to be like, well, I guess it sucks to be a taxi driver, instead of, like, trying right. to shut it down. Yeah, the, the taxis, the taxi drivers are not quite entrenched enough to stop 
Uber. Right, and like these, the general society has the idea that they shouldn't be. Right, I think it's like American culture makes it such that they can't be entrenched. Enough right, that, that. that it is corruption for the Where, taxes. Whereas you look somewhere like France, which yeah. is in many ways a all you know very very rich and developed country, but um, you know that the tax unions have immense power. Right, yeah. and I think broadly speaking, the French people, if not all of them, support that, and not enough of them support that. That it's not. It's not something that's fundamentally unsustainable. Whereas in the U.S., if that existed in any city, which I am not aware of it existing in any city, New York maybe to some extent, it's not supportable in the long term. Like people just say, yeah, Uber's better. And like, right. the, and like the French taxi drivers, there's been a couple of cases of them having like riots and like destroying the cars oh, of the so Uber French. drivers. Americans like, don't do that. No, <laughs> no. Like if you did that, like you, like you know, even in New York, the police would be like, "What are you doing? Right. We're going to stop you from destroying those cars." Right. And, and yeah, yeah. So we like this is the country. This is still the only place in the world where like you can get away with. Destroying large industries like that by replacing them with something better, but and but we can't essentialize that either because like in America we see things like with Walmart. There certainly is a lot of resistance mm -hmm. to that. There's a lot of people making a lot of noise about how Walmart, you know, does nasty things to the local economy of places that it moves into, um, and and so it's like it's it's like it's not a fully hegemonic. View right, and it's, it's it's like it's maybe just a quantitative difference. It's like America is a mm. little bit more permissive to this stuff, enough so that these kind of innovations can happen. Right, and you can't have a thing that is like a hundred percent behind this, no thought to protecting things that already exist. Yeah, like, that would be a disaster. You can't right. have that, right. and you wouldn't want it. We're not yeah. saying, that. Yeah, <laughs> but that does bring up the the really valuable point that it is something that can be lost. Yeah. Right, it's it's it is it is something that can change possibly quite easily over not yeah. that long time scales. Yeah, and, and actually like one of the things so there's 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 two aspects of this, first of all, which is there's the the sort of creative destruction once you have the company and the company's rolling and like people are gonna step in and try to stop the company. But there's sort of before that, there's the, the pre stage where it's like you have the crazy jerk himself who's kind of this semi outcast from society off building his own sort of castle in the air of like how he's going to dominate the industry. Uh, you know, he's, he's having all these imaginations. He's coming up with new ways of doing things. Um, like even at that stage, the thing could be stopped. It's not just like, Oh, once you run into established power structures, you get blown out. It's these people are socially prickly. It's very hard to find space to do that kind of work. Mm. Um, and I think, so that's like this whole other aspect is there is sort of has been at least more space for Americans to kind of do that kind of kooky creative destruction pre-work. Yeah, like Jeff Bezos is when he's in high school, he's like running around telling his girlfriend about how he wants to like colonize space and move all of the humans off of Earth and keep it as a nature preserve and like... As best as I can tell, his parents think this is kind of neat and try to encourage right. him. Right, and he probably only gets a little bit bullied. And if he, had, <laughs> if he had German parents, maybe they'd respond differently to that. Right? <laughs> and like, yeah. like, you know, statistically speaking, I'm sure there are, like, there's a lot of people in Germany, I'm sure some of them would support their son's solar system colonization efforts. Mm -hmm. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean... Uh, and, and so to bring this back again to like, well, can this thing be lost? I wanted to talk about that aspect as well, because you see cases of 
like Richard Stallman, I think, is a recent case where he's definitely one of these crazy jerks. Um, he's definitely personally written a lot of the software a lot of us use. Um, and, and the movement that he started, like, was very influential in software. So he's, like, maybe not the biggest impact ever, but, like, certainly an impactful guy. Also definitely a crazy jerk with a lot of social quirks that have, you know, upset a lot of people, sometimes very rightly. Mm. Um, but he's recently been kind of, uh, there was sort of an uproar where he ended up getting purged from, I think, his, like, cushy position at some lab at MIT. I think it was at MIT. Um, and, and this, this, I sort of took this as a sign that like, well, America maybe is becoming a little bit less tolerant of these crazy jerks. Um, that, and like, you know, an ideal system might be like, okay, well, we recognize that this guy's a crazy jerk, but also that he does cool work. So let's sort of isolate him off in some lab somewhere and like, don't let anyone go near him unless they like, sign the waiver or whatever. <laughs> Here's a list of things he might do. <laughs> this, guy, this guy might is like socially, you know, socially different. He might offend you. However, he is enabled because he does good work. Right? And like, we used to have maybe more of this and we see guys like Richard Stallman getting, um, having a hard time socially because, you know, America has changing attitudes in how we respond to, to basically like egregious social uh, faux pas. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not very worried about this in like the shorter medium term. Right. Uh, like if there were like a trend of a bunch of things like that happening, then I would start to worry more. But like I haven't heard of much of this stuff and there's always some sort of level of tug of war around it. And like... Yeah. The recent thing with Elon Musk and the SEC, I take as kind of an encouraging sign here of like right. the powers that be having an excuse to just to like really smack this guy down and deciding that like actually we kind of prefer Elon Musk being Elon Musk. So let's sort of like yeah. make a statement and let him continue on his way. Mm -hmm. uh, but like it can be lost. Like Britain used to have it, now they don't. And so on the yeah. on this. So like as things like this happen, I think it's important to be out there and continuing the tug of war. Yeah, but well, I don't think we're in medium-term danger of losing it. Right. I, I mean, in the case of Britain, they had a word for it, right? It was the eccentric. Right. They sort of had the mm. idea of this, like, crazy, rich eccentric who would do weird things, like invent the top hat or the, the, <laughs> the steam train. Yeah, it's interesting how the British ones tend to be aristocrats, yeah. like, often born into the gentry. And in America, they're... You see some of that, but you also see a lot of these Edison types of just these, like, urchins, basically, yeah. who come from nowhere. And yeah, I don't really yeah. understand yeah, what I that is. I wouldn't stand for that in Britain, I don't think. No, no. Yeah, yeah Britain has a different social structure. Um, but, yeah, it seemed to work well for them while it worked. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I, I just have to go into more detail on the top hat. The story of the top hat. <laughs> <laughs> so, Please do. <laughs> yeah, so so I, I haven't, like, read in, in incredible depth on this, but there's a few Wikipedia pages that are quite choice in this. Um, <laughs> But apparently what happened was, and you know, as British gentlemen do, people, uh, he, this guy went out and got his tailor to cut him a new, a new hat, the top hat. And then he walked down the street with the top hat and apparently started a riot. It was, <laughs> it was such a sensation that people started brawling over it. <laughs> 
And then, so of there course, has to be more to the story. Somewhere <laughs> I don't know what happened. It's hilarious, though. Uh, and and the guy ends up in court, right? Of course, he ends up course, in court, yeah. but for disturbing the peace with this new top hat that is just too much for the normal person. Um, but but is able to successfully argue that it is his right as an Englishman to wear whatever he wants. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this is like. Anyway, so of course the top hat becomes very popular for the next. Uh, the the next uh, while basically um, until what the nine like nine, sometime in the nineteen hundreds yeah um, anyway so I th- I thought that's sort of like a good example of what this looks like at least in Britain well and it's interesting that actually the top hat almost became emblematic of the sort of like British capitalist class right you right. see like the caricatures of the of the the uh, the, the you know wealthy w- wealthy people coming out of out of British industrialization and. Part of the stereotype is they're wearing a top hat. Right. Well, it's, it's this sort of like flamboyant uh, wealth, but also creativity and eccentricity. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Yeah. Now I'm just imagining the version of Monopoly they're going to have in 2200 <laughs> oh, no. with the like the jacket over the T-shirt and the bright sneakers. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, the, the Patagonia. Oh, God. Uh. Yeah, anyways. So, yeah. So creative destruction, the jerk... The, the creative jerk. Um, the industrialist. Mm. Okay, so, so there's sort of the permissivity to these kind of characters. Um, are there other things that are important to this, uh, the innovative process that, that you would say, um, besides that aspect? Like, you said there's a few, you know of some of them. Yeah, so that's definitely the sort of, like, the most interesting and unique one. You need, okay. you need like... A really strong tradition of like science or rationalism or something like there's something that you see coming out of the Enlightenment, something that you see this, this in idea, this idea of mastery and correctness, and like the pos- the possibility that you don't know the correct answer yet, or that there's a better answer. That's uh, just maybe how I would summarize yeah, it. Yeah, and it seems to the cases I'm familiar with, I haven't looked as much into the medieval Chinese cases when they were doing. Uh, really advanced, like right, really they, rapid technological yeah. progress. But the European ones that I have looked into in like the high Middle Ages, like you see this, you see it being very analytical in this mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, the these nerds doing all of their weird calculations and like arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, like because they think it's really neat, glorious, <laughs> glorious, and they're all listening to Bach at the <laughs> and. Yeah, and then, like, you know, the basic sort of rule of law type stuff. Yeah, yeah like, yeah. I don't see how you would do it without that, and I don't sure. know of a case of it happening. Yeah, I mean, Europe sort of um, suffered and benefited from this, like, advanced outbreak of of this this rationalistic autism, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so, like, the United States is far from the only place that has these other things. Like, it's right. not universal, but it's not rare. And I think right. for that kind of incremental innovation that we were talking about earlier, those those things are necessary for that as well, broadly speaking. Right? As far as I know, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I guess, like, one issue, like, you know, even if we maintain the ability to do this cutting-edge innovation, I mean, I, one of the most salient recent examples for me is uh, Elon Musk landing the rockets. Mm. Reusable rockets are genuinely new. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, and... And, like, one of the things that I think it sort of makes this, you know, we can't just rest on our laurels on that subject, is that, like, 
well, maybe you can come up with the new stuff, but at some point you just become a research lab for the people with the actual industrial capacity, right? And even if you're able to do it and you don't have the industrial capacity to pursue it anymore, and they do, you get things like what happened with the quadcopters, right? Where it's like quadcopters uh, ended up being commercialized in China because they had the industrial capacity to do that kind of thing. Right. And, and so just because you're the ones who can come up with the prototypes doesn't mean that you're the ones who are going to get an economically viable thing set up at scale. Yeah, it doesn't mean you're actually going to be the one to benefit from it, right? And, and you know, with, with the rockets, it doesn't look like anyone else is anywhere close to, launch, to landing rockets, but you could imagine that kind of thing being copied, mm-hmm. right, once the idea's out there. Oh, it certainly will eventually. Yeah. And, um, and, and so, like... The innovation is, in some sense, the innovation is like shared um, between everyone more than sort of industrial capacity itself is. Right. In the sense that like it benefits, you know, to the extent that it benefits people, it benefits everybody, right? It's like everyone kind of has access to this innovation. The question now just becomes who could build it. Um, And I guess that's always been one of the challenges with, sort of breakthrough R&D is like, who's going to fund this, given that, like, it's hard to monopolize it. Right. And, like, it's not that rare to see things where you get the prototype stuff, like, sometimes just decades before anyone can get, like, an economically viable thing. Right. And where you have things like 3D printing that are in this stage now. Yeah, well, 3D printing, I remember when I got got into 3D printing, not, not in any significant depth, but a few years ago, it was like, 3D printing was... Maybe mostly a hobbyist thing. There was a lot of people fooling around with these rep wraps and maker bots and so on. Um, you know, printing with the the molten plastic basically. Um, and you know, it was like every year they would double their double their resolution and like other other kind mm-hmm. of dimensions of interest would be rapidly improving but it was like very much kind of a hobbyist thing and there was just a few companies getting started in that yeah my impression is it's still very much like that today interesting Mm -hmm. uh but but there are certainly enough commercialization now of those you know what they call now additive manufacturing that um now you have those things being you know first class industrial processes where you're able to um 3d print like engineering quality parts yeah. Um, like, rapid prototyping. I yeah, so there's rapid prototyping, but even beyond rapid mm-hmm. prototyping, like the engine of, I forget which Porsche Porsche it was, but like the 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 naturally aspirated supercar that they did like mm-hmm. ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, maybe it was more than ten years ago, but it, the engine block was three D printed, using like a sintering laser sintering process or something. Yeah. Um, SpaceX's rocket engines, three D printed. Um, so many of the parts are 3D printed, especially the, the super Draco engines on the dragon are 3D printed from, from metal, right? Like you lay, you lay down a a layer of metal dust, you zap it with a laser, it becomes, you know, a layer of whatever you lay down another layer of dust at the end, you pull the thing out. It's a complete part. Because there's geometries that you can create that way that are physically impossible with, you know, Yeah, you you can't cut that with a machine tool, right, to bring this back to our subject. Yeah, yeah. um, Some people do consider additive manufacturing to be a subset of machine tools. Uh, I mean, it is. I I would count, I would count, um, yeah, like a 3D printer as a machine tool. However, it's it's different from subtractive manufacturing. Yeah. Yeah, anyways, I mean, so, so we have this question of, 
industrial capacity and innovation. Um, I forget how we got onto the <laughs> 3D printing aspect of it, but but the the larger question of like America's lead in innovation um, and and how that's become more unique over time. What do you think was it that happened? I mean, I guess in the case of World War II and Britain and Germany, it was like they both kind of lost the war. Britain, not nominally, yeah. but like physically, basically. And Britain seems to have been declining for a while before that. Right. And like, as far as I know, if you look at them in the sort of decades before the war, they're like doing the prototyping, but not really the ones getting the industry for most of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh... And so they were sort of like on like on the decline. With for, for Germany, I think it's a much more straightforward like well they got occupied. It's not one country. They got anymore. occupied like, and, and German eccentrics are not. Like not German eccentrics, anymore. like, you know, von Braun was like still doing the thing and then like But in America. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um yeah, I mean, the interesting thing with Germany and uh, as Germany versus Britain, Second World War, like one kind of data point on this is just the the fighter jet or not the jets. I guess they weren't jets at the time. The fighter planes, mm. um, the, the Spitfire versus the, the Messerschmitt or whatever it was. Um, and the British planes were slightly better, like they could go slightly faster, but they couldn't turn them out in high enough numbers. Yeah. And... Um, like they didn't have the industrial capacity down to do that. They didn't have the industrial organization. So that's like an interesting difference between those countries at that time was Britain was capable of like doing better work, but not quite, um, not quite there in the like scaling of industry. Right. Which is especially impressive when you add in like, the interwar efforts to deindustrialize parts of Germany and like yeah, the French especially were like trying to do what they could to like shut down and like yeah. keep them from building yeah. up the sort of like you know car factories that you can go in and like in three days or whatever turn into tank factories. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> the Germans pulled a lot of tricks uh, between the wars. <laughs> they sure did. <laughs> um, yeah, anyways, um, so I think we've covered most of the topics of interest here. Thank you so much, guys, for coming on the show and talking to us about this and for writing the article and doing the research. This is all very important stuff as, you know, we as Americans kind of rethink how to run the country, uh, especially in these these industrial areas. Um, yeah, so if you have any final thoughts on this, more things you want to say, more tangents you want to pursue, now would be the time. I think we got through all of the stuff I had in mind. Yeah, no, uh, same here. Although you know, you should also read the uh, the the longer, more technical report. You know, if you, of course. If you like the article, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, twice as long and four times as technical. Right, a lot more graphs. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that then. Thanks so much, guys. I had a lot of fun here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah.